All right. Are we recording already? Yeah, we are. All right, cool. Perfect. Hello, and welcome back to Safety Box. I'm Chloe Sakata. And I'm Ashish Reshta. Thank you so much for being patient with us as we took a little two-week break. I wasn't doing too well, so we decided to take some time off. But now we're back, and we're back with a very special episode. Yes, we are here today with Sam Velez and Courtney Plasden, who met when Sam became Courtney's patient in a medical-assisted treatment program for opiate use. And we are in conversation with them. They are sharing the wisdom that has um, grown within their relationship with one another. Mm -hmm. Now, they're very special people in my life. Uh, Courtney is also now my doctor at Greater Poland Health. Uh, she is also part of the National Healthcare for Homeless Council. And Samantha Velez is a badass co-worker of mine at Amistad. Yes, no truer words. We are so grateful to you both. Thank you, Sam and Courtney. To our listeners, we would love to hear from you. Reach out to us, tell us what you want to record, what you want to listen to. You can find us on Instagram and Facebook at Safety Box or in downtown Portland. Come talk to us. Okay, here comes the music and the conversation. I have the honor and privilege of sitting here today and interviewing Sam Velez, who is a dear friend, community member, and just happens to be a patient. <laughs> I have the honor of sitting here and interviewing Courtney, who is my medical provider and has been for the last three years. She's amazing. Y'all should try to go to GPH if you're having problems. <laughs> Shout out out here. <laughs> but we're here today doing an interview, and it's the bomb. Y'all should listen. <laughs> I think I've shared with you that when I was a teenager, I experienced homelessness too. And I think for me in my own healing journey, it has, for a long time, it was always about, I need, I can't depend on anyone else and just need to do it for myself. Mm -hmm. Right. And that's always a form of control mm -hmm. because so many people, when, when my family had nothing, when my dad was abusive, <laughs> when we lost our house and we were living in a shelter and I was only 16, it was just so overwhelming. And there was such a powerlessness in that. And my, I told myself at 16, I will never be in a place like this again in terms of the powerlessness mm -hmm. and the indignity of poverty and the indignity of not being able to make choices for yourself. Sure. And so much for me and doing this kind of work is about giving power back to people and trusting that you know what's best for yourself. You know your body better than anyone else. There is not one textbook or a research study that is specific to Sam Velez. It just doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. There is no one out there doing research on our community in a way that's really life-giving. Mm -hmm. There's no... You know, the, what they tell us in medicine around substance use 
it's done at NIH or at a study that person's using one substance. How many people in our community do you know are using one substance? I was always a poly substance user. Most of the time I was trying to self-medicate. Right. It was something I needed. So it just always bothers me when hospitals and our health systems are trying to say what is best for individuals when those individuals are not reflected in the work and the research. There's no research, very limited research on polysubstance use. Um, and then our recommendations are built off of something that is not really the lived experience of what people are going through it. And so that, for me, has really helped to shape my approach in the work and saying every person that I'm, I'm sitting in front of, they know what's best for their lives and what's best for their bodies. And so I feel honored that they welcome me into that space with them. And I'm going to just walk alongside them in this journey and support them in whatever that looks like for them. But let them define that for themselves. You're really good at doing that, too. Mm -hmm. You're really good at letting people have their time and their space and kind of trying to find what, what's going on, you know, because I've come in many times and said to you, hey, you know, I think this is going on, but I'm not sure. And then in a couple of weeks, figured it out myself and came back to you and been like, oh, this is what was going on, you know, and I figured it out. And and I, I figured it out without you, but it, it still took like you to be there for me to talk through a little bit. And then to reflect back on that after I went home, you know, and it'll come to me way later. Mm -hmm. You know, I'll be just be sitting there and all of a sudden, you know, our conversation will come to my mind and I'll be thinking and I'll be like, you know, maybe like this is what is really going on. Okay. Like when I was having those feelings come up and I didn't know why, what was going on, you know, and you, you said to me, well, Sam, you know, you, you've been housed for a little while now and this is things that we haven't talked about. And this is stuff that, you know, that has gone on in your life that you, maybe you need to talk about, you know. And that made a whole lot of sense to me. And it, and it made it feel better because it was a reason. It, and, you know, for me, I have to have a reason. You know yep. me. Yep. <laughs> I got to know the why. I'm mm -hmm. just so like that. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's really hard for me because I'm like that. <laughs> it's like, why do you have to know why, Samantha? Why? I'm the same way. <laughs> I totally relate to that. <laughs> like, I don't get it. Like, you know... Like, if I have a surgery or something, I'm like, what did come out of my body? What was that? You know what I mean? I want to see what it was. It's like, oh, my God. <laughs> so crazy, you know? But, you know. If you could sit in front of an entire provider group, like an entire health system, what would you want them to know? What would you tell them about this work, about working with people who are experiencing homelessness, about people who are using drugs, about people who want treatment? What would be some of your messaging to them? I think it would have to be um, along the lines of this, just like, you know, stop for a moment and, and maybe put yourself in their situation just for one moment. Just for a second, just try to walk in their shoes, as hard as that may seem. And, you know, even though you don't know what that may look like because you've never been there or whatever, at least try. And don't judge. Do not judge because judging people is only going to push them away and make them go, try to go somewhere else and get better care. When really they probably could have got the care they needed from you, but you were judging them and that made them feel uncomfortable. And it made them feel like they maybe didn't even deserve the care. 
that you were trying to provide, you know? So I think that that's very big for me. Don't judge. You know, try to think about what they're going through. You know, could you be able to go through it? Mm -hmm. And would you be able to get through it without using drugs if you were a drug addict? You know, these are all things that, you know, the textbooks, I don't think, tell you. And, and, and I believe in textbook. I believe that there needs to be doctors. But I also believe there needs to be doctors like you and, and, and healthcare systems like Greater Portland Health that really care about harm reduction. Because if it wasn't for harm reduction, I wouldn't be sitting in this seat right now. I would not. I didn't even know what harm reduction meant mm -hmm. until I came to Greater Portland Health. I had no idea what that looked like, what that meant. You know, just because I was still using, and even though I was cutting down, you know, in your eyes, that was a good thing. Mm -hmm. In my eyes, I'm still bashing myself to death because I'm still using, mm -hmm. not looking at the good point that, hey, you're using less half the amount you were using a month ago. You know, you need to look at those those little wins and celebrate them. That's something you taught me. Celebrate those little wins. They might be little, <laughs> but they're really big in the long the long run. They're very big and they mean a lot. Yes, absolutely. And to me, humans aren't black and white. We exist in the gray. And so harm reduction has become a philosophy to me that is not, not only limited to substance use, I think of it when I'm talking to someone who has COPD and I'm talking to them about their smoking. That's okay. It's like, all right, well, you're smoking a pack a day. Even just cutting back a few makes a difference for mm -hmm. your breathing. Mm -hmm. When we talk to someone who has diabetes, <laughs> when we're thinking of harm reduction for a diabetic, I don't expect that they're going to stop eating carbs <laughs> or they're never going to have sugar again. And then I don't threaten to take away their insulin if they do. Right. Exactly. So, and that's like, like part of it. You yes. know what I mean? Like if you threaten to take away somebody's suboxone because they have something else in their urine, like you just said, that's like taking away somebody's insulin. And you've heard me articulate it like that many times Yes. because it, it's the same thing. We need that suboxone or we're going to go out and use heroin. Yes. And what is the difference Okay, if you take that away, now we're going to be using two things. Because you're already using the other thing, whatever that other thing may be to make you a polysubstance user, you know? Mm -hmm. And I've always been a polysubstance user, and I didn't even know what that term was either until I came to Greater Portland Health. I just knew that I did a lot of drugs. Mm -hmm. That's what I called it. <laughs> I do a lot of drugs, you know? But, um, you know... The thing I want all healthcare providers to learn about is about adverse childhood experiences and the neurobiology of trauma. And part of my own healing journey, as you said, is about learning the why. And the research about adverse childhood experiences is so profound. Kaiser did a study in the 90s where they surveyed almost 20,000 individuals about their experience as children. And they asked questions that were hard around neglect, abuse, um, mental health in their family, incarceration history in their family. And there's 10 questions. And for anyone who said they had four or more adverse childhood experiences, they, were, they are 11 times more likely to use IV drugs. I remember 
you telling me this? So what that tells me is, you know, people now have such stigma against people experiencing homelessness. They judge them. They All the things you're saying, they call them junkies. And, you know, they have this horrible idea. But when we think about them as children in a home that was where they were suffering neglect and abuse, we can be compassionate to them. Mm -hmm. You know, no one wants a child to suffer. But somehow we lose that compassion along the way. I would love for every healthcare provider to understand that journey and understand that for almost every single patient I work with who are still using drugs, who are in recovery along their journey, wherever they are, every single one of them, we screen for adverse childhood experiences, have had four or more. Every single one of my patients. Mm. It is not about the substance. It's so much more than that. And so I just wish that providers would move beyond that and start asking the other questions. How can I meet you where you are? How can I care for you in this moment? What are your goals? You know, mm -hmm. we just stop seeing the person for a reason, for some reason. And we only focus on the substance. And that is just missing the point entirely. Yeah, meeting somebody where they're at, that's very important too. And I totally skipped over that when you asked me what I'd want the providers to know. And that's definitely one of the things too is seeing somebody where they're at and saying, hey, you know, okay, this is where they're at, and it may not be the most beautiful place, but we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna meet them where they're at, and we're going to give them the services they need and see if maybe, and, and most of the time if you do that and give a hand out and give a hand up, they're going to they're gonna stand up. And maybe they might say stay standing up for a while, and maybe they may stand, stay standing up for the rest of their lives because you put a hand out and helped them up. You never know what that's going to do, stopping and talking to somebody. And that's why it's so important, you know, in our work, what I do for work, you know, we pass out food. But that, that is just the bare minimum. That is just a conversation piece. The food is just a conversation piece because people are hungry. And it gets them to stop and talk because a lot of homeless people, I mean, you're frustrated. You're angry. You don't want to talk to anybody. You don't, you know, you just want to be left alone. Like, what are you going to do? You're going to take me home tonight, you know, <laughs> and give me a place to sleep? What are you going to do for me, you know? But, um, you know, so it's so important that if somebody wants to stop and talk and they want to have a conversation, I don't care. I'll stop, and I'm going to stop what I'm doing, no matter what that may be, put the food down, and have that conversation. And if it takes an hour and ten minutes to have that conversation, then that's what we're going to do going to take that hour and 10 minutes and we're going to do it and we're going to get through it and hopefully by the time we're done they're going to feel better and they're going to feel like somebody stopped and cared about what was going on with them in that moment and in that crisis or whatever they may have been going through and that is so important because you gave them the dignity of being seen that's right you they weren't blind they weren't not there to you you just didn't even see them and just walked right by because they were homeless and on the ground and dirty or whatever, you know? Mm -hmm. You know what? That's been me before. Mm -hmm. Homeless and dirty and on the ground. And I don't look at those people any different than where I'm at right now. Because mm -hmm. I am one of them. Mm -hmm. I still consider myself one of them. Mm -hmm. Of course, I'm part of that community. And I always will be. I mean, so it's hard. I do have some survivor's guilt, like you said. You know, and I, I always want to take people home, but I, I know I can't. I can't. Because if I do, that may me, put me in, in jeopardy. 
and and I don't know what that would look like for me to be homeless again. I that's very scary. That's very scary. I don't want to go there in my mind. So you know it's hard. I also at times feel some of the survival guilt. I have nine brothers and sisters and they all because of what we went through as children have adapted in different ways and some are experiencing homelessness now and are struggling with substance use mm -hmm. and I struggle with those boundaries in the same way it's so painful mm -hmm. yeah it's very painful yeah I get that a lot mm -hmm. you know that yeah we talk about that mm -hmm. a lot and I have to set then I've and I've been working a lot on on setting healthy boundaries because I have to yep for myself or I will lose my own place mm -hmm. and how will that benefit anybody else or myself if that happens mm -hmm. you know and and for probably for the first year I was bringing folks home because I didn't want to be alone I couldn't be alone I could not be alone I didn't know what that felt like and I didn't even know what sitting in silence was mm -hmm. at all because that experience was just so overwhelming to me. And I still sit with some of the anxiety that goes with that. You know that. We talk about it a lot. Mm -hmm. And even with what's going on right now, um, I'm having some stuff go on right now that's coming up. And we've talked about it. And I, I didn't even realize it was there because it's so quiet in my home now that I don't have to think about those hierarchy of needs or that fight or flight. I don't have to be on that all the time. I actually can sit down and unwind and, and know what that actually feels like today. But then I have things that, that I've stuffed way down that, ha that were buried further than the hierarchy of needs because I couldn't think of them because I just needed to survive at that moment. That's all I was doing was surviving. I wasn't working through anything. I was just surviving every day, day to day. That's what it was. And so now that I'm in my own place, you know, I got some things coming up that I didn't even know were there, and we're working through them. But, and, you know, you, you kind of pointed that out to me a couple weeks ago, and it makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. It makes a lot of sense. When we go 100 miles an hour for long periods of time, we don't slow down to process, but that time does come when, when you do have the ability or there's something that forces you to slow down or you finally have a place where you're able to be still or quiet. Mm -hmm. I almost think of it as like it just rushes behind you and just comes and mm -hmm. hits you. And I think there's also our body knows that right now I can't process these things. It's too overwhelming. I just need to survive. I need to get through this. Mm -hmm. So when your body perceives that there's some safety that you're physically in a safer place, then it's saying, all right, I've got some stuff we've got to process now mm -hmm. that I wasn't able to, that we didn't have the space or ability because I was just surviving. But now this stuff is coming up. And that's, mm -hmm. it's really, really a challenging space to be in. It's it almost, um, I, I think we don't talk about it a lot as um, a community in that transition and how hard that can be. Yeah, I think I agree. I think that we need to focus more on that for sure. Because we put folks in apartments and just think, okay, 
they're fine. Mm -hmm. But what does that actually look like? You know what I mean? Because they had lived on the streets for so long that how do you, I mean, when you physically do something every day, just like smoking cigarettes, you know, I've been smoking for 25 years. Like, I can't just abruptly stop right now. (laughs) This just isn't going to work for me like that, you know? So I was just going along and I didn't even start my recovery really until I was a year into my apartment. Honestly, that's to me where some of the healing can finally begin mm-hmm. once you're housed. Mm-hmm. It's not there's nothing over once you get housing. I had to continue uh, I had to continue keep getting high because it was like that was part of my survival skills. Yep. It helped me cope. Mm-hmm. It helped me get through every day. It helped me you know, put those rose-colored glasses on and not have to really look at the situation I was in every day, all day. And it, and it eased the pain a little bit. It did. Um, I think in the long run, it doesn't ease the pain because you end up with this big problem that now you have to fix. And just because you're in an apartment doesn't mean you, you want to fix that immediately, you know? Because mm-hmm. now you have some privacy. You're in your own apartment. You can get high on your own and not have somebody knocking at the door, you know? And I went through that little phase. Mm -hmm. I really did. You know that. Mm -hmm. We went through that, and we went through it together. Mm -hmm. And that's something I appreciate you so much for, definitely. Mm -hmm. Because you never looked at me differently. You never judged me. You never said, Samantha, you're not going to get your medication today because it was something in your urine, you know? We always talked about it. We worked through it. And you go through the trenches with me. And that's something I've never experienced with the doctor's office. Mm. And I appreciate that more than words can express. Mm. It means a lot to me, Sam. It's never about the substances, you know. And I think our years of conversations definitely have affirmed that. And that it's usually something else going on or something coming up or... um, And I also see substance use as a form of survival in and of itself at Mm. times. You Mm. know, there are times that that is a form of harm reduction in terms of what other things that you're experiencing or it allows you to either numb or medicate in a way that gets you through a situation and allows you to survive it. Mm. And I think that I want to honor that part of your journey. I don't see that as um, a a negative reflection of who you are. It is a coping mechanism and it has been a tool in your toolbox, but you've also worked on developing so many other tools now. You know, that's what's been so beautiful about your journey is that you've consistently added those tools and now you're using those tools to help our community in your new role as a peer support, you know, and I think that's really amazing. And so that's why for me, like, yes, we, we want to talk about the substances and I want to create a space where you can always feel comfortable to talk about that. But that's such a small part of the conversation. You know, it's so much bigger than that. Yeah, that's really important to me that you feel that way about me because, you know, before coming to Greater Portland Health, I didn't feel myself much more than but a junkie. Mm. You know, that's exactly how I felt about myself. Mm. Um, But coming to Greater Portland Health, I've been able to grow. I've been able to be honest right down to everything, down to the worst things that you could possibly say to somebody. And you still going through it with me. 
I can go in there on my good days. I can go in there on my bad days. I can go in there on my okay days. And it doesn't matter. I'm still going to go out. You know, I'm still going to leave with a good conversation with you. With my medication. A little pat on the butt. <laughs> go on out, you know, like your mama would do. And you're going to be all right. And I'll see you next Monday. Mm -hmm. You know, and it's it's a beautiful relationship that we have, I think. And I think it's just wonderful that, you know, we have such a great, you know, a, a, a great, you know, physicians, physicians in our, in our community as Greater Portland Health because without you guys, I feel like I would probably be dead right now. Mm. Like literally, my life would be taken because either I, A, I would have taken it because that's where I have been before in that space. Mm -hmm. Or B, you know, I could have done some things that made me, you know, not be here, you know, in my active use. But knowing that people care has slowed me down. Mm. Really has slowed me down. And being being invited to be on the pier, be on the POW team at Amistad has gotten me higher than any drug ever could. <laughs> I'm so high on life. <laughs> it's unreal, you know. It's great. It's really great. It's a really big honor. And it's it's a really big thing to be asked to do that in your community. And for somebody to think that you could take that role and really do it. <laughs> like, my dream has come true. <laughs> like, are you kidding me? Like, this is something that I do and in daily, everyday, everyday life. Mm -hmm. I try to help people. I try to take care of people. I try to help my community. I try to give back to the community what they've given to me. Mm -hmm. Because that's very important to give back. You cannot keep it unless you give it away. And I'm not very big on those AA and NA terms, but that one I really love because I believe that it's true. It means a lot to me, that one. You know, so. Right now, you are in a sweet spot mm -hmm. where you have your own place. There's a little bit of stability. You have a job that you really love. I would love to hear what, what do you want the community to know about your story, where you've come from, what you've survived, what brought you to this sweet spot? Can we grab a cup of coffee and have a cigarette and take a break real quick? Mm-hmm. On Absolutely. that one? Take a minute to think about that. Circus sound. Okay. Whatever. I don't care. I hope a lot of people listen to this podcast and laugh. That's all right. It's funny because as as a child growing up, I guess this is part of my story. As a child growing up, you know, one of my dreams was to be a comedian, and um, so it's funny that you say that. You know, I have a lot of good one-liners because as a kid, I used to practice those. Oh, that's awesome. And now they just, like, roll right off. And 
But what I really wanted to talk about, about being a child and, and my hopes and dreams was um, I wanted to be in the Peace Corps. Hmm. That was one of my first dreams, to be in the Peace Corps. And um, I never made it because a lot of things that went on, you know. Um, I had a really hard childhood. You know, my mother was an alcoholic. We didn't have a lot of food, a lot of money. We lived poor. You know, I didn't have the best childhood. But as an adult, you know, you can change all that. Now I have control of what happens in my life and, and what happens to me. And that's important to me that I have control, you know, over what's going on in my life because, you know, as a child, you're just so helpless and there's not much you can do. And, um, you know, that formed a lot of what, what happened, I was an alcoholic before I became a drug addict. And how I became a drug addict and how I fell into opiates was a car accident. I got on a head-on collision, had hit somebody head-on 63 miles an hour, broke my hip and my femur. And um, worst experience in my life, one of the worst experiences in my life anyways. And um, was in the hospital for 17 days, was released in a wheelchair which I sat in for about 13 weeks after that, doing physical therapy. Um, my twins were nine months old at that time. So um, I had nine-month-old twins in a wheelchair for 13 weeks. And my fiancé at that time, their father, obviously had to keep working because how was two people going to not work and continue to have the you know keep the house going? So I had to stay home with them and... You know, when I got out of that wheelchair, there was something in me that I went on a tear, man. I went on. I was angry is what it was. I was angry that I was sat in that wheelchair and made to just just sit there, you know. And um, that wasn't a very good relationship. He was very abusive to me. And, uh, you know, I was, I was glad to get out of that out of that relationship. But when I did, it was like I had something to prove because he, he controlled me a lot. And, and I was very young when I had my twins. I was 20, 21, giving birth. And, um, you know, I had something to prove. So I thought, I'm going to go on tear and show everybody how it is, you know. And all that did was hurt me. That's all that did. And turned me into a, a full-blown drug addict. And um, I was a very good doctor shopper, let me tell you. Very good at what I did. I'd have three doctors going at once, three scripts all at once, all opiates too. Paying cash for some, paying insurance for the others, you know. And I did that right up until I came to Greater Portland Health. Right until I came to Greater Portland Health. I had many doctors. And um, I would drive to Massachusetts, to New Hampshire. And New Hampshire is one of the best places to go do it, you know. But that's not even the point. The point is, is I would go you know, hours and hours and hours to figure this out and plan and plot and this and that to get all these prescriptions. And, you know, eventually that came dry. You get put on a black ball list and you can't get no more pills. That's it. You're done. So I fell upon the methadone clinic. And I thought, this seems like a good idea, right? You know, I'm doing opiates every day. Seems like the people that go there are stable. They're getting their dose every day. They don't have to go doctor shopping. This seems like a good idea. 
So I decided to go to the methadone clinic. We were living in Shapley. We were driving to Cap every day from Shapley, 45-minute drive at least. We were doing that for about six months, and then our car broke down. And that was the beginning of the end. That was it right there. We were living in Shapley. My boyfriend at the time's mother did not approve of us being on methadone. She didn't approve of us being on pills either, but she didn't approve of us being on methadone. So I was like, well, which one is it? Because it's got to be something at this point. And um, so we had heard about Portland and their homeless shelter and how they took care of their community. And if we moved up here, they'd help us. And at the time, my boyfriend's counselor had convinced us that it was a good idea to come up here to Portland and to move into the shelter and that they would take care of us and we would be able to get our dose every day. So we up and rooted everything we had and moved to Portland because we needed that methadone. That's all it was about. We knew nobody. We got dropped off on the corner of Oxford and Preble Street right there, across the street from GPH. And it probably wasn't even GPH at the time, <laughs> right? <laughs> and because uh, this was in 2009, we're talking. And um, so we went along with that for a little while. And when I got here, man, what a an experience. What an experience. I've never seen anybody shooting up like that. I'd never seen anything like that in my life. And I was in total shock. I, I'd never seen people using like that. Just, I guess I'd, I'd, I've always lived in Maine. I've never gone to a big city and seen people just on the street, homeless and using like that. And I was in absolute shock. My body was in shock. I did not know. I was scared is what it was. I was scared at that point. And it's funny because I work with these people every day now and love every one of them. Love every one of them to death. But at that moment, I did not know what to think, right? So we went to the methadone clinic for quite a while. And, and then we met some people and da-da-da-da-da. And they started showing us new things and the new jam and what to do in Portland and what the grind was all about and everything. <laughs> and, you know, and... And, and it interested me. And it seemed like I could make money here. You know, well, well, look at this. New opportunity, right? And then I was 32 years old. I lost my health insurance. They kicked us out of the... They kicked me out of the methadone clinic. Me, because I lost my main care. My boyfriend was still going. So here I am. I'm sick. I'm sick as hell. I don't know what to do, right? I'm on the streets, I'm asking people, what do I do? You know, because I don't even know what to do at this point. Somebody says, you do some heroin. I'm 32 years old, I've never done heroin. <laughs> so I'm like, heroin? Like, I'm thinking Axl Rose, and I'm thinking, oh my God, like, you know what I mean? <laughs> like, this is all I can think of when I think of heroin, right? And I'm thinking, I don't want to die, though. You know, like, that's what, I, that's what I thought of when I thought of heroin, you die. If you do heroin, you die, right? That was my that was my thought because I didn't know any different. So I let somebody shoot me up that day with heroin for the first time. And was I in love? I was in love. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. And I went along like that for like a year, you know, off and on on the dope, on the dope. 
And then I just got sick of it, man. It just got so old. It's such an expensive habit. It, it's not long-lasting in your body. It's like every four hours you need it, you need it, you need it. And it, it's like this beast that won't stop on you. And I was like, this is just not for me. I can't afford it, you know? And I'd been on Suboxone before, but that was long before. And and it used to make me really get sick. And I don't know why. Maybe I didn't need it as bad as I needed this time. So I ended up going up to the hospital. And um, they dosed me with Suboxone for the first time again. And I, I, I started on that train again. And I got off the heroin. And I started getting on subs again. And I started buying them off the street. And then I met my new boyfriend, who we all know. We won't name names, but we all know. And he was going to Great Apollon Health, and he said, maybe you should start going here. And I said, well, you know, it would be nice to get a doctor and, and see, you know, what that would be like instead of trying to buy him off the street. And I got a doctor, and, and, and I've been with you guys ever since, and life has changed, you know. Life is so much different now that I have stability. I have my medication every day. I feel great. You know, I don't have the anxiety around how am I going to do this today? Oh, my God, I got to make moves. I got to do this to make this happen so I can get my fix. And there's no more of that. You know, it's just I can wake up, I can take my meds, and I feel fine. There's so much freedom in that. There is so much freedom in that. And this is the first time that I can actually say that I love myself. Mm. <laughs> Wait, what was that? Could you, could you come again? This is the first time I can actually say that I love myself. That's really amazing. 40 years later. You really sense. helped me get there, Courtney. Thank you. It's been my honor walk alongside you on this journey you really have you've gone down in the trenches with me you you showed me you're not going to leave me <clears throat> and that that means so much to me other people in this community have done this too done that too you know but you know for a doctor to do it it's just really meaningful you to stop and you know really individualize every patient the way that you do it's really amazing you do an amazing job there's really no replacing you <laughs> thanks Sam you're welcome I feel so lucky I really do I do too feel very lucky because I never thought this moment would come. And now the sky's the limit. Yeah, and now it's here. <laughs> <laughs> pretty amazing, man. Like I said earlier, I'm pretty high on fucking life. <laughs> yeah. Pretty high on life over here, guys. <laughs> 
I don't know where you put that substance, but put it somewhere. <laughs> on the, bottle on the, it up, baby. We'd be rich. <laughs> Who wants some? Five dollars a pop. Come on. <laughs> Happiness in a bottle. Let's go. That hustle game doesn't go away. Oh, I'm always hustling and grinding. <laughs> I'm gonna hustle happiness now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Who are you gonna shout out? Who you're shouting out today? Yeah. Who am I shouting out to? Yes. You know what? I'm giving a shout out to Mallory. Oh. What's up, Mallory? We What's love up? you, Mal Pal. <laughs> <laughs> I want to give it out a shout out to Vaughn. Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yeah, Vaughn. For layering on that Irish charm. <laughs> we love you, bro. You know you're my brother. <laughs> I also would like to give an in memory to Heidi. Oh. I love you, my friend. Yeah. You were with us all every day. Love you, Heidi. Miss, Miss you. you. Miss you. Mm -hmm. And shout out to Ashish and Chloe for creating space, for holding our community, for cultivating love and joy and beauty in our city. We appreciate you both so much. Yes, we do. Oh, and I want to give one more, actually, because you know what? Shout out to Meredith Pesh for accepting me onto the POW team. Woo! Thank you so much. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we love you, Meredith. Safety Box is a production of Amistad, created by many voices. Thanks for listening.